Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. This is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, June 27th, 2019. Happy Fourth of July in advance. Tonight, we talk about the uphill battle for pro se homeowners and lawyers for homeowners in the current judicial environment, obviously with respect to foreclosures. Both Lawyers and pro se homeowners are continually frustrated by the Dickensian process of the courts. If you don't know what that means, go read a book. It's called Bleak House by Charles Dickens. If nothing else, just read the first chapter. You will see in that book echoes of what you experience in the courthouse today and what everyone has experienced in all courthouses when they have gone to litigation. What you need to know and accept, accept as fact, is that the litigation will always be long. If you're dealing with foreclosure, that's what's going to happen. They're going to try to outlast you. That's because the lawyers for the banks, like every lawyer advocating an indefensible position, know that there is a difference between who should win and who can win. And often, merely outlasting an opponent spells victory in what would otherwise be a losing proposition. Banks win because they have the money to drag things out, and most homeowners and their lawyers give up or lose heart. So we have millions of cases that ended up with the wrong result, especially in foreclosure, because of defaults, people just walking away, inaction, people failing to take action or not paying attention, or taking improper action. And that's coupled with a lack of resolve by both lawyers and homeowners to see it through to the end. Of all the settlements that I've seen with homeowners, I can't think of a single one that was really satisfactory except those that came at the end of litigation. 
For those, there are thousands of them. For the ones that are supposedly settled early, it's on terms that are just really good for the banks and bad for the homeowner. Surviving all that requires physical and mental stamina and accepting the realities of the role of courts and judges. And most of all, it requires the development of a strategic plan for each case and a tactical plan for executing the strategy. That can only be done by investigating and analyzing all the facts of the case. First, I want to address something in the news before I get to our real topic. U.S. Bank has been recently reported to have filed another lawsuit against Bank of America seeking to enforce something called buyback provisions of a non-existent sales agreement. Well, the sales agreement technically exists, but it really never took place in the real world. This is just another ploy to get people to think about the poor trust that supposedly lost money when there isn't a trust and it didn't own any of the loans. It's what we call in the legal profession a friendly suit to make it look like U.S. Bank is a real trustee of a real trust with assets that includes the loans. This is the bank's way of countering mounting evidence that no such trust arrangement exists and that the trust name is just a fictitious name for the investment bank, in the latest case, Merrill Lynch, whose liabilities were supposedly assumed when Bank of America acquired Merrill Lynch in the 2008 crash. Now, when they settle it, Bank of America looks like paid U.S. Bank, and U.S. Bank is actually getting a princely fee for filing the lawsuit, which it receives under the label of economic damages as trustee, approved by a court order because nobody is saying the whole thing is a sham. And the judge has no way of knowing that it is. And that money paid by Bank of America to U.S. Bank might very well find its way back to Bank of America because Merrill Lynch was the investment banker in the scheme, and now Merrill Lynch is now Bank of America. So U.S. Bank is the intermediary to make it look like there was a transaction. When people challenge the physical and legal reality of the trust, Bank of America gets to point to this lawsuit and others like it, in which it appears as though Bank of America agreed to buy back some of the loans and leave others with the U.S. Bank as trustee for this supposed trust. This creates the illusion of title to the debt, note, and mortgage where no such title existed. On its face, the illusion is complete. It's facially valid. That means presumptions arise from it, even though it's untrue. In reality, it is nothing. It is a self-dealing deception staged for the public 
and for the courts. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. And thank you, double, because those donations are starting to increase. And as they increase, we'll be able to do more for homeowners. For those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog at www.livinglives.me, M-E, or livinglives.wordpress.com, or call. 954-451-1230 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. Our work on the blog and our radio shows is done at our own expense without payment or other support from anyone other than you and us. If this work has value to you, then chip in. Please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Go to the home page of the blog, hit the donate button, and contribute whatever you think you can afford. Over 99% of the population of the United States consists of lay people with little or no practical experience in the courtroom. Nearly all of them believe that we have a system of, justment, of justice that favors the party that should win. They're all wrong. There are 1.3 million lawyers in the United States. Many of them hold the same belief as their lay counterparts, that the system of justice favors the party that should win. The other 700,000 lawyers know the truth. In court, the issue is who can win, not who should win. We all know that there are many cases in which the party who should win doesn't win. And there are many cases in which a party shouldn't win, but can win, and often does. The difference between winning and losing boils down to one simple thing, persuasion. Successful persuasion depends entirely upon good strategy, a good tactical plan, and great execution. Those are the three things, strategy, tactics, and execution. Sometimes great execution will make up for defects in strategic or tactical planning, but for most pro se litigants and most lawyers who find themselves in court, great execution is elusive. It's difficult. It's challenging. And even the best lawyer doesn't get it right all the time. The people who should win are the people who are aggrieved by some action or inaction of another person or entity. The people who can win are the people who convince the judge to rule in their favor, whether it's right or wrong as you might perceive it morally. Most litigants who rely only on the merits of their claim lose their cases in court, especially if they don't if they can't afford adequate legal representation from an attorney who is experienced in the courtroom. You must not only have merit to your claim when the case can only be won if the court is convinced 
of either the lack of merit of the claim against you or the merit of your claim against the opposition. Presentation and persuasion are the key. And that doesn't just happen because someone has a silver tongue. For many people, their only experience in a courtroom is small claims court. And you see it on TV with Judge Judy, which is even more informal. In small claims court, the rules of evidence and procedure are relaxed. And it is often the case that a meritorious claim does, in fact, prevail. This is what misleads people when they go into a court of general jurisdiction where the rules of evidence and the rules of procedure really count and, real, and are really enforced. In all complex litigation cases, the decision is based upon technical rules of pleading, argument, discovery, and examination at trial. This includes, obviously, the ability to make timely objections during a hearing or during the trial. I emphasize the word timely. Why? Because I still read transcripts where lawyers or pro se litigants who didn't know what they were doing wait until the opposing counsel has asked 16 questions of his robo-witness and then they object. It's too late. You needed to be bobbing up and down with each question and then moving to strike if the objection was sustained. You don't do that? It's in the record. It's evidence. So how do you survive a court system which plays by rules that you don't know and you don't understand? Well, first thing is you study and you listen. There's a lot of stuff on the Internet that can teach you about this stuff on YouTube and various other sites. This is not... I'm not the only resource for this, but I'm the only resource on that that is devoted to foreclosures. But you can get just as many good ideas from anybody who understands the rules, understands the, uh, the procedure, understands the laws of evidence. Stop assuming you know or understand what the banks did. You don't. And in some ways, you never will. It's too complex. And if you tried to understand everything, you might be solving a problem which the banks can't solve themselves. So you don't want to do that. Assuming that you know or understand what the banks did, and even worse, trying to express that to a judge, will only interfere with your planning and execution of a successful defense strategy. I can't tell you how many people have gone into court and said the magic word securitization or the magic word note 
and expected to walk out with a victory. It doesn't work that way. And the other side's going to make sure it doesn't work that way. There's an army of thousands of lawyers that have all received the same training. They know how to deal with that kind of attack. And the rules, rules of procedure, rule, the laws of evidence, it favors them, not you. Because unless you put actual evidence in front of the judge, then what you're screaming about means nothing because you are not allowed to argue anything that is not in evidence or about to be put in evidence. By the way, evidence has to be not only credible but persuasive if you want the judge to give it any weight. And when you're talking to a judge, they already have a bias to preserve the rights under a contract. And as long as they think the contract exists, and as long as they think that the parties to the contract are in the courtroom, then you've got an uphill battle. And guess what? That is what they all think. Yet, thousands of homeowners have won and keep winning. Because in the final analysis, none of the banks really have the goods. Assumptions by homeowners and their lawyers are what gets them into trouble. It leads them to ignore what is right in front of them. For example, let me quote from an email I wrote in response to a client. This is what I said. You need to study these things carefully and not assume anything. The pleading says that Boney Mellon is appearing on behalf of holders of certificates. Neither the certificates nor the holders are identified. If Boney Mellon was really appearing on behalf of the trust, they were, there would be no need to mention the certificates, or the holders. There would only be a need to identify the trust, which they're not doing, which would then be subject to discovery or cross-examination as to the existence of the trust and whether the subject debt had ever been entrusted to Boney Mellon as trustee. So you have two questions to ask them. Where are the certificates and what does the indenture on the certificates say? You will, you'll find that the certificates do not convey any right, title, or interest in the subject debt note or, note or mortgage. Who are the holders? If those are the real beneficiaries as claimed, why are they not identified? The holders are not beneficiaries. Keep in mind that if the certificates do not represent any right, title, or interest in the debt note or mortgage, then the holders of the certificates are irrelevant. Okay, so that's how I wrote the email. The, the point here is that this is all stuff that is usually glossed over. And, and in order to effectively counter the position taken by opposing counsel, you can't gloss over anything, not even the name of the client. Most lawyers only glance at the style of the case. They compound that error by not comparing the style of the case with the body of the foreclosure complaint or the body of the notice of substitution of trustee in a non-judicial state 
which starts off the whole wrongful foreclosure scheme. It's like a puzzle that seems unsolvable at first. But if you stare at it long enough, things start to emerge. I've been staring for 13 years. The first thing you need to understand is that our justice, justice system runs on money, not merit. If you want justice, you have to pay for it. Nobody is going to do the investigation, discovery, and preparation required for trial unless you pay them to do it or unless you are able to do it yourself. For many distressed homeowners, this is an obstacle which they are usually unable or unwilling to tackle, and they walk away. And in walking away, they give more credence to the idea that you, you can't fight the banks, you can't fight City Hall, etc. Homeowners often think that the system has failed them, and they're probably exactly right in that thought. Many of them are sitting with homes that are still not worth the principal amount of the loan that was given to them 10 or 15 years ago. While businesses are allowed under the bankruptcy code to strip the liens down to the actual value of the property, individual homeowners are still not allowed to do that under the law. Most lay people consider lawyers as being part of the system, and they are right. Since, but since homeowners believe that the system failed them or screwed them, they believe that the system owes them justice and therefore that lawyers should be willing to get them justice without regard to compensation. While there are probably some good philosophical arguments in favor of that proposition, that's not the way things work in this, in this country or, as far as I know, in any other country. The people who can survive the court system and win a good verdict or satisfactory settlement are those who see the system in an, in an objective light for what it is and not for what they think it should be. I'll give you examples of what I mean. Many objections and motions are made as though the judge already knows that, that the opposing attorneys have committed fraud or that their clients are lying or fabricating documents or testimony. Judges have no such knowledge, nor do they presume to have such knowledge, nor do they presume to know what issues are even being presented to them until one of the parties speaks or files something in writing. Most objections by foreclosure defense attorneys are not timely and appear to be merely technical in nature because they lack a plan of strategy and tactics. Any good trial lawyer knows that objections are not meant to prove a point. They're meant to be part of a pattern by which the lawyer is educating the judge as to the credibility of the opposing party and opposing counsel and the lack of real evidence to support their claim. If you have previously done discovery and the opposing side is, has either uh, answered or not answered, and you have properly followed up discovery with additional questions, motions to compel, uh, and motions for sanctions, you can use both their answers and their evasions to your advantage in excluding their evidence, which is then corroborated by your objections at trial as to lack of foundation 
hearsay objection, best evidence objection, and other rules of evidence and court rules. Lay people just have no idea what I'm talking about, so they flounder about in hearings, which they almost always lose, when in fact they could have easily won. Virtually all of pro se litigants have no idea about what constitutes admissible evidence for summary judgment or at trial. As a result, they failed to introduce admissible evidence, and they failed to object to evidence used by opposing counsel for summary judgment or at trial. The rules are clear. In most cases, failure to object is a waiver of the objection. So on appeal, all such cases are affirmed, usually without any opinion. We lawyers call that PCA per curiam affirmed. On appeal, most pro se litigants and some lawyers Forget that if there is any possible reason for the judge to have issued the ruling that you think was wrong, the decision will nevertheless be affirmed, even if the appellate court thinks that the ruling was wrong. If it's possible for a judge to have ruled that way, then even though most other judges would not have made such a ruling, the decision will nevertheless be affirmed. So how do you survive? The answer is always preparation. Before you plead anything, you should do the proper investigation, legal research, and factual research so that you know you're pleading facts rather than theory and that the facts are relevant to a specific defense or cause of action. And if you have denied something in your answer, then you need to be aware of the fact that the uh, uh, the bank needs to prove up a prima facie case and what's necessary in order for it to do so. Most dismissals of pleadings filed by homeowners can be traced directly to the fact that they were pleading theory instead of facts. Information is not a fact unless it has all the attributes indicating that it is a true event or statement and not a statement of opinion. Pleading on information and belief is not enough unless you have made outright statements of ultimate facts upon which relief could be granted. Then pleadings on information and belief fill in some of the spaces that you will prove through discovery if you enforce discovery with a motion to compel, motions for sanctions, and motions in limine and other discovery motions. One of the major reasons why homeowners win is that they have properly performed discovery and enforced it. It's only then that they can properly complain that the opposing lawyers are attempting to introduce evidence about which they were evasive or unresponsive in discovery, even after a court order. Lack of preparation for appearance in court is another big reason why homeowners lose even though they have strong facts upon which they could have won. Preparation means that you know how you are going to convince the judge to rule in your favor, and you know how you are going to counter the specific arguments raised by your opposing counsel. Big mistake that I've seen many times is that counsel for the bank raises an argument and the pro se litigant or the attorney for the homeowner raises an argument that does not address the one brought up by 
the attorney for the party seeking foreclosure. So this all means that you need to have a plan before you question or cross-examine a witness and before the direct examination of that robo-witness by opposing counsel when they're making their case. That includes follow-up questions. I've seen lawyers bring a legal pad up to the podium and ask a bunch of questions without listening to any of the answers. And so with that, I wish you a happy 4th of July. That's my take on survival in court. Good luck, and we'll see you in two weeks after the Independence Day holiday. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.